The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by the writer Maria Davana Headley, whose new book is a translation of Beowulf, a new translation of Beowulf, and one she calls a feminist translation of Beowulf. I don't know if that's been tried before, but it starts, or started the project, according to Maria's introduction, with a fascination with Grendel's mother, about whom she wrote a novel, The Mere Wife. And so... To start our podcast, Maria's going to read us a little bit of the battle with Grendel's mother. Okay, here we go. The Prince of Weathergeats was done standing on ceremony. He stepped to the mirror's edge and dove like a stone, thrown not to skip but to wait a shri- ship-shrouded corpse. Darkness drew him down. Most of a day was done before he could see the contours of the bottom. She, who'd ruled these floodlands proudly for a hundred seasons, ferocious, tenacious, rapacious, yes, she, felt his presence in her realm and knew a man from above was invading the below. She swam and seized him, but his body was swathed, bore helm, wore shirt, and she couldn't peel the mail off to reveal his dread fate, nor impale him on fingernails. She dragged him through dregs instead. The sea wolf slung the soldier out of the abyss and into her hall. He was too tightly held to wield his sword, no matter how he wished to war against her. As she swam, a shoal came seeking to school him, a scrimshaw selection of sea monsters rising out of the dark, tunneling with tooth and tusk, spearing and jeering. Sharks, seals, squealing beasts boring through the bog, biting at his battle shirt. The warriors squinted in the shadows and made out the domed walls of the hall, damming back the damned waters, the mirror made sear by engineering. He saw the glow of a fire, brilliant light flaming up and flaring, and then at last he saw her, the reclusive night queen, the mighty mirror wife. Fearless, he heaved his sword to take her life, swinging with all his strength so the edge rang against her skull, but it was to no avail. His war torch was dimmed, his blood boldness gone. She was impervious to his blade. The sword had failed him, though it had served many worthy soldiers, skinned many adversaries, slicing armor, hacking helmets into hash. This was the first time the heirloom hadn't overwhelmed an enemy. Helak's heir was bent on blood, thinking of legacy, of legend. He hurled the sword, useless horde guilt, let it shatter in the silt. He'd fight like a man and take her hand to hand, his fingerprints blueprinting her skin. This is what real men must do. Come on, we all know the truth. If you want to win, you have to forget you're afraid to die. The Geet was ready to rumble, pissed now. He roared a challenge, warmed for war with Grendel's mother, twisting her hair around his fist, raging, swinging her by her own skein, flinging her to crash against the kingdom she'd reigned over. She rose again, relentless, and turned on him, gripping and flipping him. The pugilist panicked. His certainty crumbling, he took flight and fell. He began sick-hearted to hear his death now, his sure feet fumbling, his fight spirit fugitive. 
She bent over his breast, held the hall invader hard to the stones, and drew a long knife. The mere wife meant to avenge her son, her sole heir, but Beowulf's mail shielded him, his shoulder safe in the sclerite of some smith's genius, lynx staying locked to bend her blade. Edgthau's heir would have been filleted, recategorized as MIA, and left to rot in her cavern had not his suit saved him. That, too, was God's work. The Lord, maker of miracles, sky designer, had no trouble leveling the playing field when Beowulf beat the count and stood. He glimpsed it, hanging in her hoard, that armory of heirlooms, somebody's birthright, a sword, blessed by blood and flood, ancient, dating from the dawn of things, so tremendous only a hero could heft it, though all would envy it. Beowulf gripped the giant's sword at the hilt, and then he, the shielding's main man, in desperation, not expecting to exist after this night, swung it at his enemy with all his might. It was enough. He cleaved her spine. Those bone rings given by God were bitten through, the house of her head raided as her hall had been. She bent as though praying, and was spent sinking to the stones. The sword sweated red. The swordsman regretted nothing. Thank you. Now, Maria, as you say, you call this a feminist translation. A lot of people go, Beowulf is about as macho as poems get. How do you, how do you set about turning it into a feminist text? Well, the thing about the history of Beowulf translation is that, yes, it's very, very full of men. The poem is a poem about men trying to show status to other men, basically. But there are a lot of female characters in the poem who are who have roles of their own, which have been kind of less investigated over the history of translation, because most of the translators, though not all of them, were men. So as I was coming through working on my translation, what I did basically was just look at the women with as much attention as I looked at the male characters, which a lot of translators historically haven't done. They were like, oh, the women are a little bit boring. They're not, they're not as interesting as the male characters. They don't have as much drive, particularly the women who had roles like Peace Weaver in the poem, like Wilthy Owls, who is uh, Rothgar's wife. And I just looked at her with more attention. I wanted to see what she was really trying to do with the speech that she gives and what she's trying to do in her role as the queen of this kingdom. As well, Grendel's mother sometimes is categorized as not a woman at all, but a monster. And I wanted to look at her. I wanted to look at her full range of emotions and see what was motivating her, which is a pretty human motivation, the loss of a son and her desire to seek revenge after her son is killed. So, yeah, I, feminist translation is a kind of broad term for what I did here, because what I really did was look at the humanity of all of the characters. But the women in the poem have often not been looked at that way. Now, Grendel's mother's, you know, as you said, it's your point of entry to it. Fascinating thing you say in your introduction is that, you know, all of us think, or most of us who know Beowulf, think of her as this sort of monstrous sea hag. You say there's no warrant in the text for her being a monster or being physically monstrous or ugly or, you know, is, I mean, maybe we think of her as looking like Angelina Jolie if we've seen the film, which is a slight disjunction, but there's nothing in the text that says she's a monster. That's true. The text does not describe Grendel's mother. She is, um, she's just Grendel's mother. Grendel is a little bit described. We get a little bit of a description of him and he, his actions are somewhat supernatural. But so are Beowulf's. Beowulf does things that are beyond the pale of what a human man could do. 
holds his breath for a day. He holds his breath for a full day. Yeah, he swims for a full day. He dives and dives and dives. And Grendel's mother isn't like that. Grendel's mother comes and does sort of feud rule law when her son is killed. She kills one man for her son, and that's it. She doesn't kill the whole room. She doesn't eat anyone. She kills him, and that's she's done. And then Beowulf comes and takes his revenge on her after that happens. But they have a human battle. They have a battle that is using knives, daggers, swords. It's not a situation where she's clawing him. But in some translations, the word for fingers, the Old English word fingram, um, is translated when it comes to Grendel's mother as claws. And so she is, and sometimes people got a little fancy with it and started saying the old, ugly, nasty sea hag witch thing, which isn't in the original. <laughs> There's no like old, ugly hag in there. It's just the word for her is a word that is used elsewhere to mean formidable or or warrior. It's not a word that's used to mean monster necessarily. Now, that question of the vocabulary, are you an Anglo-Saxonist by background? Did you sort of teach yourself to read Anglo-Saxon to do it? Or is this more like Christopher Logue's free translations of the Iliad? Somewhere in between. I, I had written a novel called The Mere Wife, which is based on Beowulf, and it came out in 2018. So it's Beowulf from the women's POV set in contemporary American suburbia. And I had, so I had been reading and reading and reading various translations of Beowulf and scholarship surrounding Beowulf for years by the time I did this translation. But I was never, I never formally studied Old English. And so what I did was the, the difficult version. <laughs> it's all difficult. Translating Beowulf is difficult. But what I did was I did a literal translation of my own with dictionaries and scholarship and piles of things all around my desk. And then I translated my own literal translation into the poetry that you read in this translation, which is a long way to do it. It's, it's, not my, it's not a recommended way. I wish that I had years of study, but I think that in, in so, one of the things that was a pleasure about this was that because I had, I had not done a degree in Old English, it all came really fresh to me at the same level of freshness. So it was very exciting. Even the very basic words were exciting to me. And I felt a kind of like first learner's delight as I was encountering them, which I think it, for someone who's done a lot of deep study, they don't have that same sense of invigoration as they go along because it's more familiar to them. So for me, I had an interesting experience doing this because it was all like sudden doors were swinging open in every category of the text. And what made you want to go back to it, having already written The Mere Wife? Did you feel there was unfinished business? I did not. I thought I was done. I, I didn't have any intention of being an obsessed Beowulfian creature for seven years. But I did a reading from The Mere Wife, and in the audience was... Uh, two women who had been a judges on, a, on an award that I'd been nominated for. So they came in because they were fans and they were like, you know what you should do. I was reading from The Mere Wife. I was talking about the history of translation of Beowulf. And they said, when is your translation coming out? Because obviously you're doing one. You don't know it yet, maybe, but you're doing one. And I thought, no, 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 I'm not. I'm not doing one. And then about three days later, I thought, yes, I am. I'm doing one. That's what's it's happened to me now. I've caught the bug. And anyone who translates Beowulf or anyone who works in Old English finds that you become obsessed. Like, you think you're not obsessed. You think you're going to be fine. And then you've caught it. And you have to dive in and do the work of the translation. I At least every translator's note I've ever read has had elements of, oh, no. And then I became obsessed for 40 years, which... Thus far, it's only been seven years. I hope it's not going to be 40. I hope I don't just keep doing this, but we'll see. For listeners who maybe aren't completely familiar, can you tell us, you know, how does Beowulf come to us? There's just one manuscript, isn't there? 
Yeah, it's just a single manuscript. It's a manuscript that came about circa like 1025 AD, maybe a little bit before that. It's a copy with two scribes who worked on it together. One is correcting the other's work, probably monks. And it is probably, but not necessarily, a transcription of an oral performance. And I think it definitely is. Like the way that the text reads, you have little recaps running through it, little like Last night, Grendel died. Let me remind you, because you were pretty drunk by the end of the night audience here in this room. So it's um, a situation where you get you get the sense of the oral storytelling in the in the poem. So it came to us probably from a fairly long tradition of oral storytelling. But we don't know. We don't have any information. We have a possibly a 300 year span of time from which this text could date. This poem could date and possibly multiple poets, multiple storytellers adding their stuff to it. So it's a kind of collaborative, collective work inherently. And even as a translator, I feel like I'm part of the collaboration process. Even though the collaborators have been dead a thousand plus years, I feel like I'm I'm sort of holding hands with them and we're sharing a pen right now. Yeah, there's another complication in terms of the diction. Because I think you quote, is it Tolkien saying, look, this language was already old fashioned. Is that right? That That you're not, you know, it's not right to think in Anglo-Saxon times this would have been, you know, the the vernacular of the day. Why is that? Well, Tolkien feels accurately because it's true that the the poem is in a poetic register. It's not in a naturalistic speaking voice, and it is. It's full of cuttings, which are these words that are sort of, you know, metaphors inherently, little compound words, and uh, like whale road for ocean, for example, and. Tolkien's like, it's not naturalistic. It already is an elevated poetic language. Therefore, a translation of the Beowulf text, which he did himself, needs to be in a kind of formal poetic language. And I think Tolkien's work on this is pretty is in, intensive and intricate and amazing. But his translation is one of the things that inspired me to do a vernacular translation, because his translation is very formal. It feels like you're reading Lord of the Rings. It's in a voice similar to his his fantastical fiction voice. And he didn't want this translation published. It came out long after his death. It didn't come out until 2014. And it's very stiff. (laughs) And I read his translation and I thought the content of this story is like a bro bragging story, the events that we're learning about in this story. It's so funny that they're in this, the world of men register. Maybe it would be interesting to put it in a more vernacular kind of contemporary register and use that braggy storyteller voice and see how that works as a storytelling voice with this text. And that's what my translation ended up being. For years, it struck me that Beowulf seems to be set in a kind of old English version of a kind of gangster rap world. You know, it's all about men impressing other men, boasting, getting bling, scoring respect. You know, it's... Do you do you see it as being part of that idiom? I do. I mean, I think that the... The history of storytelling has certain tropes that run through it, and we can we can always see them. They're tropes about, like, how do you get status? How do you get power? And one of the ways that you can get power is by storytelling. So the Beowulf poem is really about a guy who tells his story over and over, and he keeps going, I'm the biggest, I'm the bravest, I'm the strongest, I'm the best. I'm coming in, I'm going to fight your monster. And you will then give me gold and I will have status. And, you know, we see this running through classics as well, through classical Greek stuff. We see, you know, Odysseus has similar methods. And it's something that has been 
you know, that, that sort of storytelling bragging character is something that we have obviously still today. We have, I mean, we have a patriarchal society. So often that character is a man. It's rare for the central character to be a woman getting her power by telling her story and mythologizing herself. But I mean, some of my other writing is about exactly that, because I think that's an interesting thing to balance the canon out. But this this one is a guy and he's saying, I'm I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. And I just think that's it. It's not not particularly contemporary. It's something that's ancient and continuous throughout thousands of years of humans being humans. We've all kind of done the same thing. I'm, I'm the one who has the power. I'm going to tell my story. Every Beowulf translator has, you know, a major decision on word one, which is, you know, how do you translate what? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've had kind of listen up. Heaney does so. How did you translate what? Well, I translated what as bro, um, which, yeah, I think I'm the first person who's done that. <laughs> this, but I felt like the word bro as the, as the kind of attention getting translation, but not, not, I didn't do it to get attention. I did it because I could see the notion of the, the shouted bro as, as a theme that would run through the text. But the, um, the idea of that first word, that it's like a listen up, listen to me, I'm taking the floor kind of word. Bro, of course, is used that way, too, in our culture. And it's used as not only am I banging my fist on the table and asking you all to listen to me, I'm also saying we're all part of a community together. We're a familial kind of community, but we have status and I have the floor. I'm the, I'm the man talking. So I wanted to use all of our contemporary connotations with that word and apply them to this text so that we could have a kind of greater understanding of the nature of the storytelling in this poem. I mean, the other big decision to make is about the verse form, because obviously it's so distinctive in the Anglo-Saxon, that kind of four-beat line with the caesura and the alliterations. Did you think it was possible? I mean, you used something quite a lot like that, quite a lot in the poem, but it's it's freer than that, isn't it? It is. I kind of, initially, like everyone who ever translates Beowulf, I had a vision of myself being the one who would succeed in replicating the Anglo-Saxon meter and getting it correct. And... Um, No, it's not going to work in contemporary English. The Old English doesn't translate well um, metrically to the same kind of format. So I did a much looser format, but it contains tons of alliteration. I used more than the original. And in the original, the alliteration is kind of all vowels alliterate with each other inside of words. So it's a different kind of format. But I used a lot of alliteration, which is a dangerous thing to use. You could often end up sounding like Edgar Allan Poe if you're not careful. So I had to be careful. <laughs> but I love poetic language. I mean, as Tolkien said, it's, it is in poetic language. It's a pleasure to write something in poetic language that still feels right and feels real. So I used alliteration. I also used rhyme. And I used a lot more rhyme than is in the original. The original has only little tiny segments of rhyme that echo rhythmic encounters, such as the ocean coming, splashing on the shore. And I used rhyme that would go from line to line and sometimes from from sort of stanza to stanza to kind of keep the forward propulsive motion of the text, because there are sections in it that are recitations of names. <laughs> and some of them are a little bit boring, like they're known as the kind of boring parts of the Beowulf. And in order to keep those kind of trucking through, I, I used rhyme and alliteration to keep us knowing that we're still in the story, that we're still continuing um, rhythmically through to the to the events that are happening. You've also kind of, as you, you say, you point out in your introduction, you know, you get in a lot of very contemporary sort of, you know, almost hip-hoppy, dialogue there's modern swearing there's 
a, a lot of very contemporary stuff, up to and including hashtag blessed, which again is probably the first Beowulf translation that's got the word hashtag, but you also use archaisms. Is it in keeping, do you think, with the sort of like rough-hewn texture of the original to try and do that macaronic time-jumping quality, or was it just, this is the way to make my translation timeless? Well, what I was thinking about as I was working on this was not just the nature of the original, the literal nature of the original, but also the history of this text in the world over the past thousand years and the ways in which it's been translated, the ways in which people have thought about it. So I wanted to use language from essentially the last, the whole history of the English language. I used little bits from everywhere <laughs> because I wanted to give us a sense of this text being continuous through time and the ways that people have grabbed from other languages and, and used slang throughout and created the slang into more formal language in some cases. Some of the, the words that that we consider to be formal English words are actually words that started out as slang. So when I was using contemporary slang in this translation, and sometimes people were like, oh, no, 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 horror, horror, hashtag blessed is in this translation and and Stan is in this translation. And many of the words that I use that feel like derived of our last five years, you know, of, of Internet slang. People were like, oh, it will expire. It's going to expire and it's going to feel very awkward and cringy to have expired words in there. But the history of the English language is expired words that then sometimes kept floating back up. So it's an interesting thing, I think, to use words that are likely to expire and to enfold them in a poem like this just just because they will become archaic i like the i like the notion of the sort of revolving archaity of english <laughs> english language and the ways in which words change meaning and change connotation and in the original beowulf there are words that we have trouble with because we don't have the connotation for them we don't have any context we're like why is that word there what does it mean and to the audience that heard it originally they would have been like oh he's talking about this event that we all know about. He doesn't even need to say it. We all know that that happened. Just the little sense of it is enough. And that's what storytelling is. That's what a living text is. And I feel like, for me, I was trying to create a living text with the memory of the old text entwined. That old text, I'm interested in the shape of it because I think, again, my, my sort of folk memory of Beowulf is always there's two bits and then there's the other bit with the dragon. You know, it feels like that's sort of bolted on at the end though actually feels much more part of the whole in your translation. Do you think, as it's come to us, it's a complete story? Or do you think it's one story with a bit that's been bolted on or there are missing bits? I mean, are you satisfied with the shape of it artistically? Well, over the years, I've had many different thoughts about this because the dragon does. It's, it's a wild card on the end of the Beowulf poem, and it feels wild. A 50-year time gap happens, and Beowulf fights Grendel, Grendel's mother, then becomes king, and then 50 years pass in one line, and then a dragon comes to trouble his kingdom. And so I used to think that it was something that had been added on by someone who was like, uh-oh, I have another night of storytelling to do. I'm going to add this dragon story as an emergency measure because I forgot what I was supposed to do. And now, <laughs> now I don't think that. Now I think having done this translation, the translation caused me to really stretch myself across the whole text and imagine the ways in which things connect from the end to the beginning. And in my translation, the dragon is of a piece with the sort of critical mass of the women in the tale who are getting angrier and angrier and angrier as the tale goes on and they're getting they're increasingly neglected and so the 
the dragon is a female dragon in my translation, which I don't think anyone's ever done before, although there have been male dragons. The dragon is not gendered in the original. So I made the dragon female. I made the dragon, like, at a certain point, you start to spit fire because you you can't stand it anymore. And that's what happens with the dragon. The dragon's lair is invaded. Someone steals from her. She is, she feels unsafe and it makes her angry. And I think that a lot of the text underlying the masculine bravado and bragging and battles, there's also a sense of instability and, and lack of safety for the women in the poem. And you get many depictions of that over the course of the poem of women burying their sons, of women grieving at the sides of pyres and then being carried off as property. So I, I entwined the dragon that way, but I also entwined Beowulf's possible misdeeds as a young man coming home to roost with the dragon at the end, his going in and killing Grendel's mother, which is which is actually against feudal law. He's not supposed to do that. He's Yes, he could have left it, couldn't he? Yeah. She wasn't yeah. coming back to trouble the meat hall. Yes, exactly. She had done what was due to her. She'd done the thing she's allowed to do. And he's not supposed to go kill her then. <laughs> but Rothgar... In the original text, that idea that that she might have quieted Grendel's death, and that's that's that. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's... the This section in which Rothgar commissions Beowulf to go kill Grendel's mother is an interesting section. I translated it as a kind of emotional outburst from Hothgar. So he's like, I'm upset. I'm mad. Kill her, kill her, kill her. And then Beowulf goes and does something that is against the feudal law. He goes in as a sort of mercenary. And in my translation, I, I used words that would give us the sense that he's doing something a little sketchy doing that, that it's a little, and he kind of knows that he's doing something a little sketchy. And then he comes up and all is well, but all is not quite well because he did something that isn't allowed. So by the time the dragon comes, he knows that he has some bills to pay and he pays them with the dragon and he and the dragon both die. <laughs> and he goes at the dragon by himself, fights her alone, you know, which is his, his pattern, but he fights her alone and leaves his entire kingdom vulnerable. And what we get at the end of the story is the knowledge that Beowulf has died and that all of his people now are going to be victims of his bad choices, essentially. Yeah, I'm interested how much you think the the Beowulf poet or poets evince a kind of consistent point of view through the three parts of the poem. Do you think there is a sort of underlying worldview to it that maybe is more complicated than simply killing stuff and getting loads of rings is good? Yeah, I do. I mean, and I tried to bring that out of this translation. I wanted to think about what being good means, because that's a big underlying theme in the text. There are like constant little advice given sections from older kings saying, don't be a bad king. Don't do it. Don't lose control of your soul because your hunger is to just hoard. And the dragon, of course, is a gold hoarder. The dragon is a monstrous gold hoarder. But also the men in the poem regularly become gold hoarders. It's something that keeps happening. And one of the things that the old men try to tell the young men pretty regularly over and over is don't lose control. Don't start to hoard all the gold. Don't start to think all of this is yours. Isn't the whole thing that it's gift giving is the thing? Yes, you have to give the rings. You have to support your community. You can't just... You can't be the only one in charge. And Beowulf consistently tries to be the only one in charge. He's he's a good king, and he's referred to that way in the text. But he's also someone who is like, no one is as strong as me. No one can fight these battles but me. I'm the, I'm the hero. And the nature of being a solitary hero is really examined in this poem, I think. And the nature of 
the peril that you put everyone else in your community and life in by seeing yourself as the only as the only powerful person, as the only one qualified is um, something that's really examined. So when I was working on this and thinking about the way that masculinity is depicted in this poem, I think it's right there. There's a consistent POV saying, don't try to be the only one. Don't try to be the only good one. Don't try to be the only hero. It's not a role that is survivable, not for you, not for your community. You actually have to collaborate. You have to work with other people. And only the monsters are solitary in this poem. So Beowulf is solitary. He's one. He's in the monster category. Yeah, Grendel lives with his mom, obviously. Yeah, he does live with his mom. He's an incel. <laughs> but very, I mean, early on even, and it's a sort of bass note that goes through it. I think it's the narrator's voice says, doesn't it, in the Grendel section, you know, he's got all this gold and stuff, but the last owner of it will die miserably and the gold will sink into the sea, or words to that effect, isn't there? There's a sort of prolepsis that even at the height of the glory is always saying, you know, absolute desolation eventually awaits. Everything comes to dust in the end. It does. I mean, there's there's a really distinct point in the, in the text where we get the, a thing called the lay of the last survivor, which is the story of the horrid gold that the dragon has. And it's the story of what happened. And it's a culture, it's a group of people... Uh, group of people who fought with each other and died. All of them died, but one guy. <laughs> and the one guy is left to bury the gold, which is just going to sit there in a pile. And he is, he's the richest man in the world, but he has no joy. And there is like that examination of hoarding and of capitalist kind of tendencies, which not that this is a capitalist society, but if we're looking at our society and the way that storytelling has built our society, this is a, an examination that says, Think a little bit more about that. Think a little bit more about your pile of stuff and whether that's what's really important here. Is the pile of stuff going to bring you happiness? And it does not in this text. It historically never does. <laughs> All throughout the text, you get you get moments in which people die of the pile of gold and they die of their heap and or are left alone with their gold that brings them no love. And it's uh, it's like really explicit. So it's yeah, it's an interesting thing to see, like, the mini depictions of of dissatisfaction and of loneliness caused by acquisition. Yeah, and I, that thing of looking forward to the end of things and all being very bleak is one of the things I find most attractive in all Anglo-Saxon, but it seems to be a huge part of the Anglo-Saxon worldview, you know, that wandering around a set of ruins, wondering whether, you know, who are calm, all that sort of stuff. I mean, I'm interested in how kind of in light of that, that Anglo-Saxon fatalism, that, you know, weird bifolarad kind of idea that fate is fully predestined and, you know, it all generally ends in dust, how Christian the poem is. Because it does have a lot of explicit references to God. But is that a sort of <laughs> bolt-on to an older tradition, do you think? Well, theoretically, what happened here is that this is an older story and it's an older kind of piecemeal story that then comes through Christianity rising up. And so it comes through that period and becomes Christianized by the scribes, essentially, or by the by the later poets who are touching it. But some of the old pagan elements remain, and many of them, in fact. In the poem, there's a moment where the poet breaks in and says, 
Of course, everyone in this poem is worshiping the wrong gods and they don't even know it. They think they're fine, but they're not fine. They're going to hell. And he just like gives us a little sidebar. <laughs> and um, even as we think we're with the heroes of the poem, the, the poet says, here, I'm standing out here and I know they're not the heroes. And it's an interesting thing, the way that Christianity is braided through and periodically like sort of just thrown in little, little like a shaking of pepper or like an afterthought because I, I feel that what what it shows is the passage of the text through time and the passage of the poem through time and through changes in the culture so it's it's the sort of thing where you're seeing history in the words which is an interesting thing to see is it significant that, that Grendel has 12 disciples with him when he goes to to slay Grendel's mother or is that just a happy accident do you think <laughs> happy accident I think <laughs> also kind of slightly wrapped by the character of Unferth, who is the sort of disgruntled Edmund sort of figure, isn't he? You know, who produces a kind of diss track for Beowulf in part one and is mightily, you know, there's a sort of little rap battle goes on, doesn't it? It does. It's, I mean, one of my favourite parts of the poem, one of the things that led to this translation is this battle between Beowulf and Unferth, who's who's the right-hand man of Hrothgar. He's like the guy squatting at Hrothgar's feet. And he has not been able to do anything about this monster that's been attacking for 12 years. For 12 years, the monster has come every night and killed and killed and killed. Grendel has been in there and nobody has really succeeded in doing anything about it. And they just decided not to move, which is some bad king right there. Like, maybe you move, maybe that's what you do. But Unferth feels taken advantage of by Beowulf coming in and saying, I'm the hero now, because Unferth feels like he's the hero. And there's this big battle where he's like, you're not the, you're not the man, you're not. I heard some things about you, I heard some gossip. And let <laughs> me like tell it to everyone. And Beowulf is like, let me tell you the story. Let me let me explain to you how amazing I am. No one even knows how amazing I am, and I'm just going to share this with you. So it's definitely a kind of battle sequence. And I wrote it that way. I wrote it as a kind of sort of battle rap sequence, which is suggested in the original, obviously, or I wouldn't have done it. But it's a it's a contemporary metric spin on the old English words and the old English connotations of meaning in there. But Unferth then comes round, doesn't he? I mean, there's this quite touching bit where he says, okay, have my special sword. Much good though it does him. He does. He he <laughs> I think he decides that he doesn't want to do all the warrior things that Beowulf is very willing to do. Beowulf is like 18 years old. He's he has no fear. He's willing to do anything. And Unferth is probably older than that, significant you know, significantly older than that. Maybe Unferth is like in his 40s. He's like, I know, I don't think so. I'm just gonna give you my heirloom sword and you can have it. And I'm going to tell you that when I was insulting you, I was just blackout drunk. I was so drunk that I don't even remember it. It's forgotten. <laughs> and so, yeah, you have this moment where, where Unferth hands his sword off to Beowulf. And that's the sword that Beowulf tries to use to kill Grendel's mother. And it doesn't, it doesn't work. It's like a, a failed floppy sword. So that's an interesting sequence, too. And then Beowulf gets the sword of uh, God shines a light and says, this one will work. And he picks up the sword that will work on her, which is like basically God decides that Beowulf can win. Otherwise he would be dead on the floor of Grendel's mother's hall. And he's he's just lucky. His fate is to continue forward and fight a dragon eventually, I guess. Where does that sword come from? I mean, it's just a sort of Grendel's mother has it on her mantelpiece. What's the suggestion? Well, that's the thing. That's one of the reasons that I wanted to investigate that. Grendel's mother has a whole armory. <laughs> She has, like, over in the armory, he sees this sword. It's not like it's the only thing she has. She has a bunch of weapons. 
And again, why would a monster have a bunch of weapons that are there? She also uses a, a dagger, uses a knife with him, which means that she doesn't have long claws. But yeah, it's interesting. Like how, what did she fight to get her kingdom? Who, who did she fight? How did she become the queen? She has no husband. She doesn't have a king. It's just her and Grendel in this space. And it's a, a sort of meticulously engineered underwater space. It's a dry space underneath a lake, which is intense. <laughs> But it's, it's hard to visualize. Hard to visualize, and sometimes you, people have visualized it in weird ways. But she, the poet, says that she's been there as long as Hrothgar, so she's about seventy. She's an old woman, and she fights an eighteen-year-old boy and almost wins. And she, and he's scared of her. He knows that he's losing. She's strong, so that's an interesting warrior character to have a, an elderly woman be a warrior against like the strongest young guy in the world. Like really, an interesting choice in the story and on the part of the poet, I think. Do you think, as you portray her, Grendel's mother is a pretty sympathetic character, or at least she's, her motives are understandable. You know, the dragon, the dragon is a fairly sympathetic character. Grendel less so. And do you think that those shifts of sympathy are in keeping with the original poem, or do you think they're a, an interpretation you're placing on it? Well, I mean, I always have sympathy with the monsters myself. And I think that most translations have some sympathy with the monsters, because the monsters are interesting. But the Grendel character is motivated by the by sensitivity. He's motivated by loud, loud noises near his quiet home. And he goes down and has to wants to check it out, basically. And the the old English says, he went down to have a look. <laughs> and he decides because he because what is happening in this hall that's been built next door to him is that the warriors are singing and singing about how amazing they are. All night they sing, they party, they drink, then they crash out and go to sleep. And so the peace is really being disturbed by them. And the reason that Grendel goes in is that. But then he goes a little too far and decides to eat everyone, which, you know, that's an unusual characteristic of Grendel and hard to, I can, I think I can definitely feel in, in this translation, I tried to kind of point out the, and sort of textually compare with the use of certain words, the feeling of someone building on your land and it's your land. It's not, th- it's not theirs. They came and built on it. You've been there for 50 years and now they're here on top of you playing loud music. It's like a frat house on top of your nature preserve. So I tried to point out why that would be a problem, you know, but, but what he does is so, so extreme. He loses control of himself with fury. He can't stand it. It drives him crazy. So he's, he's a little less sympathetic, but I think that his reasoning is not, crazy like he's he's he has been he's being stepped on by by the frothgar's court people who are coming in onto his land and grendel's mother i think has a very easy reasoning to track we understand exactly why she would do what she does her son is killed he comes home bleeding to death his arm has been torn off and he dies and she says okay i'm going in i'm on a wave of grief i'm going in and i'm going to kill one of the important guys in that court because they killed the person most important to me and the dragon similarly has been invaded and says, I'm going to set everything on fire. She does more of a Grendel thing. She tries to set the whole place on fire. <laughs> she is done. She's like, I cannot stand it anymore. So there's like, there are many senses in the poem of people who can't stand it anymore and like lose it. And they, they're in all categories of the poem. Some of them are human characters. Some of them are people who are kings who are like, I'm great, I'm great, I'm great. Oh no, too great. Tipped over the edge. Now I'm setting everything on fire. 
so it's it's interesting that you see the full spectrum of what can happen and what can change in someone's assessment of their universe or their surroundings. And you see that with several characters who are happy and then not happy. <laughs> and so, I mean, I think that that's all kind of in the original and it runs through the entire poem. And you see it, you see many characters going through that same journey, sometimes on a slower, in, more slowly, like Beowulf is the slowest journey of all because his journey is 50 years of I'm happy, I'm happy, oops, not very happy. But other characters do it much more quickly. Uh, we're we're r running close to the end of our time. I just wanted to ask you, you've now read an enormous number of translations and there were some wonderfully eccentric ones you mentioned. Someone did it in Ballad Meter. <laughs> That one is really terrible. Um, it does not work. I quote a little bit of it and I can't remember who it is. It's not like a well-known translation. This is like sort of late 1800s, but it's death. It's death to read it. There is, let me see, I'm looking through my introduction here to see if I can, if I wrote down the name of the person who did this. I've got it here. A. Diedrich Wackerbath. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that's exactly who it is. <laughs> yeah, you can go and look him up. He's, um, his like one of the interesting things about this is that you can put all these translations next to each other and and have a look and see what people did and how much those translations were actually inflected by the time that they were in. And I know mine really seems like it is. But if you look at the whole history of translation of Beowulf, they all do. It's not at all unusual for it to have contemporary vernacular and contemporary meter and extra floridity and like Victorian attachments to it. That's a normal thing in the history of the t translation of Beowulf. And um, yeah, I particularly like the William Morris translation, which is full of wild, archaic words. It's uh, almost unreadable. You can't follow it, but it's a chaos. It's a, it's like a kind of delightful chaos. It's a freestanding own thing translation, <laughs> which is which is kind of a pleasure to encounter next to some other translations so that you're able to follow the story. But then you can see what translation is. You can see how, what a creative process translation can be and how it can be like William Morris, of course, known for his, for many things, but his visual art and his like embroidering of edges. And that's what this translation looks like in a written form. How much do you think, you know, as you say, it's inflected with our own, our own contemporary residents. I'm always fascinated when you're translating stuff that's really old, how much it's possible to kind of you know, see it through the eyes of the original text. I know talking to Madeline Miller, for instance, about, you know, where her, her novels set in, you know, reversionings of the ancient Greek classic. And she said, you know, kind of ancient Greece was a sort of rape culture. You know, it was this really, its values were so antithetical in certain ways to ours that, you know, it's hard to kind of, to see the world through the same eyes. Do you think you can with the Anglo-Saxons? I mean... Or do you think some of these things are just like, they see this this way and they have no problem with that, but we do? Well, it's interesting. I mean, looking at this text particularly, because what it is, is a story that's set in a kind of imaginary Nordic culture that's that's being written by English English speakers in the, in, you know, years later. For years later from the imagined terrain that we're we're trafficking in this poem. So it's um it's an it's something that has been imagined already <laughs> by people who are centuries off from the from the theoretical actuality of it. So it's sort of set in Norway and Sweden, but yeah. written by Brits. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's a, it's already a compendium of times and and cultural 
imagining. And just like anything, though, I mean, I think probably Madeline would agree with me that that every kind of novel is an is an imagined reality, even if it's a naturalistic novel set in our time. You're still imagining someone else's experience, which is a foreign land. You don't have you don't have the ability to really know what anyone else is feeling or thinking, even when they're the people that you have next to you. Um, so this is so the art of of writing novels like this is like being willing to go, I'm going to just leap into trying to imagine myself imagining it. And in this case, that's what I did. I, I went, okay, I'm going to try to feel what it would feel like to be in the room hearing this story. And then from there, I'll try to feel what it would feel like to be the person standing on the table shouting the story out over the room. And then from there, I'm going to try to imagine being one of the other poets that sort of contributed to this. And I did it a kind of retcon <laughs> of like going backward in time, imagining how little bits of it added to the story and how chunks of it got there, how the dragon got there, how, you know, what kind of, what kind of dragon liking poet went, I, I really just want a dragon. I want a dragon and put that dragon in. I, I think being a writer myself and being a novelist and having written all kinds of other things and having also had my own work translated into lots of other languages, I had the sort of range to imagine myself into lots of different points of view here, including the poet and the scribes and the, the sort of narrative voice. And that was um, that was one of the pleasures of doing this translation was being able to try to put myself in the in the shoes of someone who was already crafting a wild imagined universe that was not their own. Miranda Zwana Headley, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.